This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, a Business Radio special presentation of Dollars and Change from the annual CEO Connection Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia, where CEOs across a wide variety of industries have gathered to meet with peers and share information, access to resources, and insightful discussions of the issues pertinent to mid-market business leaders. Here are your hosts, Cheryl Coleman and Sandy Hunt. Welcome to Dollars and Change here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are, you know, off to a great start today. Lots of energy in the room. You can hear the live event behind us. A reminder, you are, we are here every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. We have a, an especially exciting show in store for you today, as you can hear buzzing behind us. We are from the floor of the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention here in Philadelphia, which means we have the pleasure of talking to eight leaders across mid-market companies over the next two hours to hear about why social impact is integral to their business. And we do this, we've done this now for a couple of years, yep. Yep. and it's one of my favorite live shows we do. Yeah. And I think what's really exciting about this group of people is that the, the breadth of the companies are mm-hmm. so, you know, there's so much... T- depth and breadth yep. into what they're doing, that we're seeing a lot of different ways that people are using social impact. And so it sort of extends our work a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot of companies that we are going to talk to that at first blush, you might not say, you know, I think of a law firm and I think of social impact, or what? I think of a, a business to business, you know, construction company. And I think of social impact, but we're really going to see, you know, the tremendous way impact is uh, being made by these companies. So, and how list, you can listeners. think about it for your company and your, you know, your exactly. employer. Lots of good examples here. Um, so I'm going to give you a quick look at who we're going to be talking to today in our first hour. We're going to talk to Mark S. Stewart, who's a partner and chairman at Ballard Spar. Then Gina Fife, executive director at Integra, followed by Robert Barker, who's the president of the Bob Barker Company. And wrapping up our first hour here with Michaelin Harris, who's the president and CEO of Elpro and Reinhardt Fikes and the CSO at Elpro. So she's busy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we'll head into a second grade hour and talk to Terry Andrews, who's the national public relations director at RSM. Stephen Lang, the CEO at Danker. Nancy Richardson, the CEO at the San Antonio Shoemakers Company, and wrap up with Paul Sacone, who's the CEO of Able Services. And what I think, what I think listeners should should hear, if you don't recognize a ton of brands you know in that list, that's all the more reason to listen because it really talks about the power for every company, company. to be making impact, not exactly. just a, you know, a food company that you might think very obviously about their impact. So, welcome to our first guest. Without Thank further ado, Mark Stewart, thanks Thank for being you. here. So, Mark, you're a partner and chairman at Ballard Spar. Tell us about why impact matters to you guys. First of all, as a law firm, we're a profession, and there's actually a professional obligation to give back to the community. So the, the first prong of it is just a professional obligation. But our, our work in social responsibility is really housed in our pro bono uh, program. And uh, we have one of the finest in the country. Uh, we received the ABA's Pro Bono Public Award this year, and I'll give you a couple examples why. But we also use um, our Pro Bono program to help train lawyers. And one of the differences we have being here uh, from the other companies, we actually serve these companies. Oh. And so as, as they begin to develop corporate social responsibility programs, they turn to us, and we can help them because we've been doing it for years. And it also is a terrific way that our lawyers can engage with clients in a way to serve the community. Oh, well, that's fascinating, yes. Yeah. Right, because we, we know from our work um, in our we, we a paper we recently um, were very proud to see come out based on a database we built called Contracts with Benefits, but actually looking at, you know, the, you know how impact is showing up in the legal terms of contracts for impact investing and beyond. So yes, there's there's a, I hadn't thought of that dimension right away, but there's a lot there. So tell us more about that award you guys won this year and, and why. Well, I said our program's been going on for a long time. We devote almost fifty thousand hours of free service to the the needy community. But two of the highlights from last year. On one end, we were. Uh, we were working with the Obama administration. They had a program on clemency for minor drug offenders that were given excessive sentences. Um, we handled more of those petitions than any other firm in the country. We got 20, oh. 29 people got clemency. One of them is the subject of a documentary film that won an award at Sundance this year. It's called, it's called The Sentence. 
It's about a woman who was in prison. Her brother is a documentary film owner and filmed her two children as she was in prison. And then when she got clemency, released from prison and got, got him back into the family. Wow. Be prepared to shed a lot of tears. It's, a, it's been picked up by HBO. It'll be on this fall. And, and so that, that program has had that impact. But then on the other end, we represented the U.S. Women's National Hockey Team in their negotiations with, the, with USA Hockey. You may recall they were not going to participate mm-hmm. in the World Cup. Yep. We stepped in. We negotiated the contract with them, as we had done with the U.S. Women's Soccer Team. So the and this pro- is surrounding pay, right? Compensation? Yes, compensation. Um, so we have, I mean, the programs that we do go from death penalty cases, clemency, representing women in these, these pay issues. So because of the nature of the programs, we get a lot of buy-in from our lawyers. And it also adds, uh, you know, the profile to the firm and our clients want to get involved. One of the programs that has been most popular with our clients is called Wills for Heroes. And it came after 9-11 when when a a private citizen realized that so many of the first responders did not have have wills and left their families without wills. So he started this program, which we have have done more than anyone, where we go across the country to first responders, police, fire, EMTs. We have a program. They come in typically with their family, their wife, their children. And we do basic wills. And then we can tell them if they need additional help but these are basic wills we do for free we've done them we've done one at the statue of liberty we've done them in new york we've wow. done all over the place so and it, and and on that one that's one really where the clients participate with us the clients right. we will do it we'll we'll partner with one of our clients to go in and do one of these programs that's very cool i mean you talk about impact yes right you, right. you think about you know these folks are putting their life on the line that's and right. Not only is there the tragedy if something were to happen to them, but then when you think about the trickle-down effects of some of these tragedies where now you've got some, you know, folks who are in mourning and then there's a financial impact yep. and do they know where the assets are? And, right. You know, right. to have that preparation is a gift, yeah. you know, to soften a very, very serious, you know, mm-hmm. time for them. What we, what we learned was that typically because these individuals put their lives on the line every day, they don't think about death. Right. That is, yeah. they will not allow that enter into thought. Oh, interesting. So they don't even think about a will. And and typically, what we find is that we advertise the program, but it is it is the spouse or significant <laughs> other that says, "I want." I'm you the one to, awake at yes. night worrying. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're you're an adrenaline, you yeah. know, yeah. filled person who's chosen this line of work, and I guess can't you know isn't thinking as much right. about. Yeah. Wow, that is really powerful stuff. So, you know, we we will likely ask this question to every guest because I think it's one of the biggest in my mind, you know, with all of the impact you guys can make, how do you decide what programs to do? I mean, these all, you, it sounds like I could, you could put your whole firm behind any one of these issues. Well, luckily, we have this terrific program, and it's got a lot of support, and because of our, the agencies certainly in Philadelphia now across the country know us, and we know that we will follow through. If we're going to adopt a program, they're, they're agencies that know this stuff cold and they'll train our lawyers so all we need is for a lawyer to come forward and say i'm interested in doing an asylum case for example fine we'll go to the we'll go to the agency that most knows about asylum they'll train us and then we can start a whole group we now have an asylum group um i i brought a i i represented a woman hawa salah who was in the the darfur area and she was what happened to her is terrible, but she was brought to the United States by uh, the Clinton administration, re- received the International Women of Courage Award, but she got here, and then she was here, and noth- there was nothing, no plan for her. Oh, wow. So, you know, we, we got wind of that through an agency, and uh, I was able to represent her, and she's, she's now here, and she's an advocate for women across the world, for uh, a response to the to the, what is happening to women and, and, and the way they're being treated. And so she's become, to this country, making a huge contribution. Yeah. Just a little note that sometimes immigrants can make a big impact on this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're talking to Mark Stewart, who's the partner and chairman at Ballard Spar here on Dollars and Change, about the incredible impact their firm is making. And I think we needed the, the tissues for this segment yeah, as well. This is powerful stuff. I know. And so, Mark, one of the things... Um, how do you? How do your associates um, get involved in these kinds of things? Do they volunteer? Are they ins- assigned? 
No, we ha- our our program is 100% voluntary. But I mean, as I said earlier, they if they have an interest, they come to us. But we have a number of we have a number of sort of groups that are already in existence now. So an asylum group, we have a group that represents abused children that represent them in the legal system. We have a group that simply that well goes to a a, a homeless shelter once a month and works with people there. What do they need? The needs are enormous. enormous. We have a group that does name changes for LGBT people. You think that's minor, but to to help people just get a name change, get their birth certificates, these minor things, just trying to navigate our legal system is impossible for somebody who doesn't know. Small shout out to the uh, the new season of Queer Eye. Uh, (laughs) The television show does a name change segment where they go and someone gets a driver's license that reflects their, you know, gender identity. And it is so powerful. The things you don't think about, you know, so all of that. So we have groups. And then if someone comes and they, it's something we don't do. And we'll figure out how to do it. Well, that, that, and that's fascinating because it really does allow you to uh, adjust to changes in, in the issues that are on top of people's minds. I mean, you know. Well, you one story, again, talking about adjusting, when the travel ban. Yes. Yep. Right? We had lawyers in every airport. Yeah. No wow. one was planning it. We had a woman in our New York office flew back from overseas when the travel ban hit. Did not leave the airport. She sent her luggage home, but she started wow. representing people in the airport who were being sent back to country. So, yes, you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be flexible. But I th- the, the point for me is that they, lawyers know if there's something important that they want to get involved in, the firm will support it. So that's the type of lawyer we attract. Yeah, yeah. and I have to tell you, you know, your, your husband's an attorney, my brother's mm-hmm. an attorney. You know, the hours and the, the pressure mm-hmm. of sort of where you spend your time you know, can be very present. So the fact that, you know, sitting here and talking to partner and chairman and hearing the commitment behind it, it mm-hmm. really sounds like this isn't just something that's a, if you're crushing your billable hours and there's some yeah. room left, yeah. you can volunteer. It's no. really, this is a core part of our business yeah. that's really valued. It is a core, it is a core value of the firm. Yeah. yeah. And are you starting to see, you know, the integration um, sometimes we talk about it as uh, it used to be very bifurcated. There's the impact work and then the core line of business work. Are you starting to see more of an integration of those skills being pertinent to core business needs? And well, yes, because because of the way the law is changing, sometimes mm-hmm. their associates don't have the opportunity to be in court, argue a motion, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Pro bono work allows them to do that, and there are some courts now that if a um, if a lawyer is handling a matter pro bono. They will. They will. They'll have an argument, even if they weren't going to have an argument. Give oh well. Wow. And they will come down from the bench, and they will evaluate and give some feedback to the attorneys if they're do, if they're taking it as an appointment or doing it pro bono. Wow. So we're seeing that, and then as I mentioned earlier, with the clients, the whole the whole idea of engagement with clients. All these people are walking around. I'm sure are telling their lawyers. We want lawyers who understand our business or are committed to our business and want to work together with us. Well, pro bono is one of the ways in which you do that. You help that you learn the client's business, you get better involved in what the client's thinking about, and you're training your lawyers at the same time. Fabulous. All of these conversations are ones we can continue far longer than okay. time allows for. Mark Stewart, partner and chairman of Ballard Spar, thank you so much for joining us here on Dollars and Change. Thank you. All right. We are here at the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, having all sorts of great conversation, all of which could really go on for hours. We have the pleasure of now turning to our next guest, the Executive Director of Integra, Gina Fife. Gina, welcome to Dollars and Change. Thank you. Excellent. So we want to be able to make sure we cover (laughs) much of the great work you do. As we mentioned, these segments are flying by. So Integra is a, a petrochemical trading group. Is that the best way to summarize it? In, Integra Holdings is our family holding business, okay. uh, which is headquartered in Singapore. And uh, Integra Petrochemicals is a company owned by Integra Holdings. Got it. Excellent. So, um, you know, at the very highest level, I think a lot of our listeners would think, okay, petrochemicals, oils and gas, all right, lots of opportunity for impact here, things you avoid and things you uh, focus on. Tell us a little bit about how you guys think about social impact. Social impact is something that's fundamentally important to us um, as a family and as a company. I mean, we operate, because we're a global petrochemical company, we operate in many countries um, across the world. That's one of the 
you know, one of the, the very important things about being a petrochemical company. Mm-hmm. You can't just be in one region or right, one country right. in the world. So we have staff in many offices. Uh, we've been in the market for almost 30 years. Uh, so we, we've had lots of opportunity to, to live in those areas and see those areas. Um, it's important. I mean, I've heard people talk about, yeah, it's a good thing for staff retention. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it isn't really about that. Well, perhaps it is for some. Um, but for us, it's actually part of our DNA. Uh, we're all very fortunate people. Um, we've all had many opportunities. And it's important that we can kind of pass that on and pay it forward. Um, in some of the countries where we do business, uh, there's a large amount of poverty. Uh, there's lack of education. Uh, I'm a mother. Uh, I went to university as the first person who went to university in my family. Um, so I understand that that's important, that that education, particularly education for girls, girls yes. uh, makes a huge difference. So we tend to focus on areas of education, uh, maternal health, uh, infant mortality um, because okay maybe in America that isn't a big deal but in some parts of the world it's (laughs) it's a huge issue Um, in some parts of America perhaps yes Uh, so we tend to to look at that and we also um, we ask our employees to um, choose projects that they like uh, within a platform uh, that we think that we can support and people people really enjoy it um, they have fun with it. Yeah. Um, it means something to them. And can you give a specific example of, of one of these projects or one of the initiatives that you guys have worked on? A, a simple one. Yes. Um, during the tsunami in uh, in Asia some years back, I mean, and it was just some of our people came to us and they said, uh, "We're very fortunate. We're, we're sitting in Singapore, um, but this tsunami it has caused chaos." Uh, we would like to go uh, with our church um, and with volunteer groups uh, to Thailand uh, to help mm. uh, post-tsunami uh, clean up. Uh, this was, I think, a few days after the tsunami took place. There were people missing. And we said, okay, they wanted to take the vacation to do this. And we said, look, okay, don't bother taking vacation. You need to use vacation for rest. I guess you're not going to be resting. So take, take, the, take the time, um, make sure you're vaccinated properly. The company yes. will pay for all your vaccinations, and we will give you the additional vacation for every day that you spend there. Well, um, but this was a be- benefit. Yeah, that was great of you to do that. Well, I mean, we have enough people that were willing to cover the jobs of those who went. It wasn't as if, you know, the whole office went. But- um, but some, for some people, it was very important. It was very personal. Mm-hmm. And it meant something to them. And they were able to talk about it when they came back, which expanded that as well. Yeah. Uh, another example is I, I work... I, I graduated from the University of Edinburgh. I'm a biomedical scientist. And I've spent time with the University of Edinburgh, uh, quite recently still, uh, working with them on their social impact projects. Um, Because we as a family, I speak at conferences about social impact as opposed to philanthropy. Yes. Mm. Uh, I think both are important. But as a family, you know, we find that we get quite tired of um, people asking us for money and they don't seem to have a very good reason what they're going to do with it. Uh, They can't explain it. And we believe that we can bring sound business principles mm-hmm. to philanthrop- philanthropic projects to, to actually make those groups accountable and make sure that they're spending the money in the best way, in the right way, and that it's not being wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, can you we, give us a good example of one that you think, gosh, they, you know, they really approached this the right way. We are excited to support it. We, we actually work with, uh, with quite a large charity um, uh, in the UK, based in the UK, where we like it because um, we like it because they're not there forever. You know, they're they're going in, they're teaching, they're supporting, they're helping, um, and then they're moving on to the next project. So and not creating a dependency. Yeah, legacy. because there there is a huge problem uh, with dependency. Yes, uh, where. 
people... Uh, I was talking to a taxi driver here in Philadelphia yesterday about it, and he comes from Syria. Okay. And, uh, but he, and we were talking about dependency, that, you know, how are these Syrian refugees uh, going to get off the aid programs? And, you know, sometimes it's the little things that, that make the difference. It's making sure that there are incentives to get out of the camps. Uh, making sure that there's education, making sure that everybody's safe. Yes. Um, so that type of things. I mean, one of one of the one of the things that that I find with this uh, UK charity is that when they go, how can I explain it easiest? What they're doing is they're they're focusing on women, and they're focusing on child education. Um, water is a huge issue. Yes. I mean, I have this thing about water. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, so if you can dig a well close to the village so that the women don't have to w- walk for miles, uh, carrying water back and forward and getting their children to carry water back and forward, that saves so much time. Yeah. But you don't put a caterpillar tractor or something in there, huge heavy lifting material, to build the, dig the well you actually use shovels. And dig so well with you the dig shovels. A, you, well, not quite with shovels, but uh-huh. you use very simple yeah. technology. Because what happens is when the aid agency leaves, um, they can't maintain this complicated equipment with all its buttons and, and whistles. Sure. And uh, things that break. And they break, and you, you find them lying there. Mm-hmm. Um, out of use, and they were very expensive. Yep. So it's better to use simpler technology that has the same effect that can be sustained by the local community. So they go in and they'll help these people learn how to dig these wells. That means that the women have more time. Mm -hmm. That means the women have access to more water. That means that the women can water their gardens more. They can increase their gardens. They're going to get more crops. They're not pulling their kids out of school to help with carrying the well, water. And, you know. and there's also a safety issue, right? Yeah. If you're having to walk very far away mm-hmm. from yeah. your village. Yeah. You, you know, might not get back. Violence. Right. Yep. Yeah. So that also means that because they can grow more crops, they're not growing crops just to feed their families. They can actually sell, sell them the in the crops. local market. Mm-hmm. That brings in money to the family. And that means that more of their kids can go to school. And that is an incredibly good and simple virtuous cycle. Yeah. yeah. So we like that type of stuff. So as we, we talk to each of the leaders we're talking to today, I am asking the same question, which is how do you decide in a company you know, of a great size, you talked about the geographic mm-hmm. footprint you know, being quite expansive, how do you decide where to focus your impact? It sounds like um, your employee passions are part mm-hmm. of what drive it, but you know, at a big company where you could do a million things, how do you decide where you're going to focus? Well, what we do is we have, we have set parameters. So we're looking at child education, we're looking at maternal and uh, young children mm-hmm. health or young child health. Um, and as long as things are within that box, as it were, uh, we're interested. Um, we have a committee that every year will decide on what projects the corporation decides they want to, mm-hmm. they want to focus on. And we'll look at new ones all the time. Um, but those have to come in. It's not that an employee comes in and we just give them some cash. Yep. Uh, we had one of our, our shipping guys came in the other day um, th- that, you know, they come up with some idea or other. It didn't quite fit. So he's quite passionate about it. So we said, okay, we'll do this once because he pitched it very well. We'll do this once and we'll do it for a small amount of money and then we'll see what happens. But... So, yeah, so it's a little bit of a tester. Pilot. Yeah, it's yeah. a tester. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to be as flexible as possible. Yeah, because I think you have to. Because, you know, he passionately believed in it. Um, and he'd been talking to other people about it and his team. So they believed in it. So if we can, why not? Yeah. Um, but it's decided by committee every year. Excellent. Well, I am sad to report that our time has flown I'm by. Sorry. We need to wrap up this segment. Um, Gina, thank you so much for joining us. That was Gina Fife of Integra. And this has been the first quarter of our show. I'm Sandy Hunt alongside with my co-host, Cheryl Coolman. And we're having a great time here at the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We have six more great guests for you in the next 90 minutes, including a very interesting segment we're going to jump into right now. I'd like to welcome Robert Barker, the president of the Bob Barker Company. Robert, welcome to Dollars and Change. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us what the Bob Barker Company is. 
the Bob Barker Company is a correctional supply business. We sell to uh, jails, prisons, and juvenile facilities across the country. Personal care items, clothing, uh, mattresses, handcuffs, things, things of that nature. Yep. So it almost it, it's um, it's just like a supply company. I've hopped on the yeah. website. It's you know got cleaning products, bedding products, you yep. know, attire, tools, you know, all these different necessities. Um, and you guys have a foundation that does an incredible amount of work. Tell us a little bit about that at the high level. Sure, sure. So um, the Bob Barker Company Foundation. Uh, we started about uh, seven years ago now. And um, to our understanding, it's the only foundation in the United States, perhaps the world, that's focused exclusively on reducing recidivism. And what recidivism is, um, for folks that aren't familiar with the term, it's the rate at which somebody that leaves a correctional facility today will find themselves back in a facility within a three-year time period. It's typically measured. And what is that rate in the U.S. today? In the U.S., uh, smash average, it's about uh, 68%. And that's, that's horrifying, right? Um, it is, uh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's heartbreaking because it is, um, you know, it's speaking into an individual's life that is experiencing incarceration again and again, but it's also an intergenerational issue right. where the children of incarcerated people are five times as likely to be incarcerated themselves and 80 some percent of, um, inmates are parents so this is a uh, this is a very big uh, societal issue mm-hmm. and there's millions of people 2.3 million people in the United States that are incarcerated today that are impacted by incarceration it's uh, you know uh, the correctional population grew from about three or four hundred thousand in 1980 to 2.3 million in the early 2000s just explosive exponential growth um, and, uh, you know, in the United States, we incarcerate more people than anywhere else in the world. And that's, uh, compared to countries like China and India with populations over a billion. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about the issue of recidivism, we, we've seen, you know, gr- some groups and companies that this is the cause they choose to help out about, but none with, you know, as deep a day-to-day knowledge and of the business yeah. Yeah, that, as you guys have. So tell us how, you know, how that you know, visibility to the products that are, I mean, you must really understand the nuances of how these facilities work to be able to tailor your products to, you know, that customer. Mm-hmm. How does that inform the work the foundation does? Well, I think um, really understanding, you know, the the job that our customers face day to day, the challenges that they face uh, helps inform the, the products that we're creating. Um, but it also informs us to the, the challenges that, you know, not only that uh, the inmates are facing in our correctional system, but also correctional officers sure. on a day-to-day yeah. basis. And there's some pretty awful statistics about uh, correctional officers and life expectancy, where the life expectancy of a correctional officer is a decade or more less wow. than the average person on the street. And can I ask, yeah. is, do they attribute that to like incidents on, of in, 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 in or work or that like stress? the stress and... It's more, it's more so the stress. It's not so much, you know, that, uh, although certainly there are correctional sure, officers sure. that are hurt and murdered in the line of work, um, that's relatively a rarity mm-hmm. compared to the 700,000 or so correctional officers that are working day in and day out. Oh, wow. But, um, but yeah, it's a very, very stressful, uh, line of work and it's very, you know, it's, uh, in a lot of places in the United States, it's a low paid job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and these men and women are putting their lives at risk every day and uh, doing their best to care for the folks that are charged with their care. So it's a you know it's a challenging situation for everyone that's involved in our criminal justice system. So as, as you think about the work at the foundation and just some of these issues you're very aware of. So let's assume I just get out of prison. Mm-hmm. I got family, no kids. Mm-hmm. What what kind of help do I need? What, and and what, how does the foundation understand what's going on with me? Sure. Um, I mean, one of the things that I would say as we got involved with this was just learning how complex the challenges are and the odds that are stacked against an individual that's coming out of incarceration. One of the first things you're probably going to need is a driver's license. And it sounds like a simple thing. It can be a very difficult thing to uh, get a driver's license again, particularly if you've been incarcerated for a number of years. There were some open charges from before. Just getting that cleared up can take a lot of time and money that an individual probably doesn't have when they right. first get out of a facility. As uh, somebody with a criminal record, 
Um, there's a lot of housing opportunities that would not be available to you. Uh, there may not be uh, uh, public food options that are available to you. There may, may be homeless shelters that are not available to you. Um, and certainly, you know, for many employers in the United States, if you check the box on the yeah. application that you have a criminal record, it goes straight to the circular file cabinet, and it's uh, very difficult to find employment. Yeah, it's really a, quite a systems issue because, um, you know, every one of those is a, is a hugely complex challenge. Right. Um, can you give us an example? Um, uh, you know, one of the things I'm so intrigued by is how intertwined the impact of your foundation and your business line is. Are there instances where the work you've done through the foundation and addressing some of those, you know, huge challenges you just rattled off to Cheryl, where those have actually improved your products? your mm-hmm. product offering and you've been able to say, Hey, the work we've done, the impact work is informing better business. Gosh, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I've thought about that. Like before. we now understand, you know, mm. the sleeping arrangements better and we could tailor pro, you know, products to sure, meet the need better. Sure. Um, you know, I don't know if there's an instance that comes to mind with where our work from the foundation has informed us specifically about a product. What I will say is it's given us the opportunity to go, much deeper in facilities. So we've been to, you know, graduation celebrations uh, that have taken place with, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations where we're sitting across the table from inmates that have graduated from a, you know, 12, 18 or 24 month program and have an opportunity to hear about their lives, about what brought them to where they are, their gratitude for the opportunity that this program afforded them and to really understand uh, maybe less so the individual facility needs, but really our customers' customers and some of the things that have driven um, them in their own lives and their decisions to make changes to not return to prison in the future. Yeah, oh, it's powerful stuff. Um, issues like recidivism sort of have no end, right? They really blurry edges. So if you're thinking about the work of the foundation, it's like, there's housing, getting driver's right. licenses, expungement, employment. You know, how do you decide where to focus and where to sort of say that, you know, we do this, but we don't do this. I used to work in homeless services, and that was always a challenge. It's like, how, how far do you expand the scope of your work? Um, so how do you guys think about that? Sure. Um, one of the things that we're definitely focused on in the foundation is we want to have um, interventions that, that demonstrate tangible results. So they take, you know, a lot of the programs that we support take recidivism rates from the high 60s to the low teens or even single digits. Uh, one oh, per, one wow. program for a period of time actually had a 0% recidivism rate for about 20-some years. They, they have one now. but Why it's, is that you know, not being replicated? Why is that one program not being replicated? Well, I can, I can probably explain to you why it's not being replicated, and it, it does relate to some of the things that we look at in the foundation. Um, so this was actually a uh, degree-bearing uh, college course program in uh, New York State area that was actually taught in maybe a half dozen different facilities okay. in New York State. Well, was this out of Bard? What's that? Was this out of Bard? Bard, of card, Bard, Bard College? college? Um, I'm not sure if Bard was involved. Okay. It's, it's a number of universities in... Um, in the New York area that are in New York state, mm-hmm. upstate New York, Sing Sing was actually the first facility where this was done from. And what they found is basically, um, you know, if folks are able to get an associate de- degree or a bachelor's degree, and there's even within the program, the opportunity to get a master's degree, basically with higher levels of education that just recidivism basically disappears. It just, it doesn't wow. exist because you can get better jobs and you can get better jobs. You can get greater opportunities. It also yeah. challenges your critical thinking skills, all those kind of things. But, but it's not an inexpensive intervention. Sure, right. It's sure. something that costs, you know, thousands of dollars. And once upon a time with Pell grants was more widely available to mm-hmm. the incarcerated. But one of the things that the foundation looks at is what is the cost of an intervention and because we're ultimately looking for things that have the ability to scale more right. widely, mm-hmm. right? Like if we um, were able to, to give a simple example, you know, um, a drug rehabilitation programs, there's a lot of substance abuse that are, that is, you know, overlaps with correctional populations and there's uh, substance abuse programs that cost, you know, $30,000 a year and are two years but I'm going to say, so that's a $60,000 intervention yep. that has a great low recidivism rate, but it's very expensive. 
there's another program that we work with that has um, uh, actually is an inmate led program that uh, has uh, what's called a, a big blue book that's a part of the program. It's called Reaching Out from Within is the name of the program. So the cost of the intervention is really just the printed materials. Mm. It's inmate-led, so there's not a lot of uh, professional staff that are involved other than administration. And they have actually demonstrated this is like a weekly meeting that goes through key topics of you know anger management, relationships, budgeting, all those kind of things that um, uh, with a curriculum that was originally developed by an inmate. And what they found is they've actually been able to track the recidivism rate relative to how many meetings a person goes to in this. Wow. And once you get out to about 52 uh, weeks worth of meetings, the recidivism rate is in the low teens. Wow. And the cost of that program is on the order of maybe like $100 for an intervention. Right. So that's something that we could get behind and say, let's blow this out across the country versus an intervention that's $60,000 per right, individual. Right. So that's one of the things that we look at in the foundation as well. That's so cool. We're talking to Robert Barker, who's the president of the Bob Barker Company, about you know, both their, their sort of you know, for-profit side of their business, you know, creating products, selling products to correctional facilities, and then the impact work they do in their foundation. Um, you, know, you have a systems-level view of these facilities. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty neat, right? Mm-hmm. So whereas the, I don't know what the title will be, executive director or chairman of a particular you know, of Sing Sing, you know, how often are they talking to the head of a correctional facility that's a smaller women's prison in West Virginia, but you're selling to all of them. Right. Are you, you know, seeing interventions that work or trends and able to sort of share that across, um, you know, all of your customers? Because that's a really neat sort of yeah. unique vantage point. Oh, so it'd be like talking about this inmate-led exactly. uh, intervention yeah. with other prisons. Exactly. Yeah, and there's actually, there are great organizations um, within both uh, corrections and detention. There's the American Correctional Association that's actually been around for like 145 years that has twice a year national conferences. And a lot of the content at the conferences, they're sharing you know, opportunities for growth for correctional officers, but also interventions awesome. that help with issues like recidivism. Uh, the American Jail Association also is a nationwide conference that meets one, once a year where folks are talking about issues like this and sharing best practices. And the foundation recently, uh, uh, back in August, presented about some of the programs that we had seen that demonstrated mm-hmm. a lot of efficacy awesome. at the American Correctional Association. But that was, cool. that was a good broad audience of um, you know, other administrators that's from great. around the country. No, so. that's great. And so, you know, so often we see these social services that are really resource constrained. Yes. Yes. Not having the time, capacity, you know, travel budget, whatever it is to connect with like organizations and be able to share and leverage those best practices. So that's fantastic. Well, one of the things that we're doing that's a first for the foundation, we're actually having um, two and a half days of training for any of the grantees of um, the foundation that have been recipient of a grant in the past um, the executive director and the chairman of the board can come for free to um, a two and a half day program that we're putting together that's all about best practices for nonprofits. Okay, so we help yeah. the organizations to you know grow further faster um, but also be able to cross-pollinate ideas about what's working in their organizations and there's you know nonprofit organizations from all over the united states that have been uh, grantees of the foundation. That is so cool. Well, we could talk to you for quite a long time about that, but we'll let you get back to this great conference <laughs> and we've got to shift to our next guest. But Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. That Thanks. was Robert Barker of the Bob Barker Company here on Dollars and Change on Sirius XM Business Radio. We are here at the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thanks for the great conversation, Robert. And we're going to shift to our next guest joining us. This is McKaylin Harris, president and CEO of LPRO, and Richard Fikes, who's the CSO at LPRO. Thank you both for being here. Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning. We're glad you guys are here. So, McKaylin and, and um, Reinhardt, we will direct our questions to each of you, but feel free to add on Chime to one another. Yeah, want to, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Got it. It's very conversational here. We're sitting in these lounge chairs and in the lobby. Everyone's six expresses in because there's a uh, DeLonghi <laughs> station here peddling delicious 
lattes and cappuccinos exactly. and the like. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. One of the fun things about this show on the road here is that we talk to a lot of, you know, business to business companies and uh, get a chance to look at the work they do as well as their impact. So, Michaela, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Elpro is? Sure. So Elpro is a global company. We are based in Book, Switzerland, and we have six global subsidiaries. So um, I'm in charge of the, the North American one in the U.S., and we're a temperature monitoring company for the full pharmaceutical supply chain. Excellent. Oh. And, and uh, the, we're immediately bringing to mind the many impact examples you hear <laughs> yes. of, you know, uh, vaccines not getting the somewhere cold chain. appropriate. Yep. Yep, yep, exactly. Temperatures and things like this. Um, so, Reinhardt, let me shift to you. Um, how do you guys think about impact at a company like this? Yeah, what we discussed uh, up front is that the product itself is the impact so um, we would like to talk about that new innovation we have in our pipeline, which is a small device, uh, not bigger as a postmark, um, which is bringing a big impact uh, at, even to the patient eventually. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very integrated in that business. Right, right. Exactly. If you get the vaccine to the people who's going to use it and the vaccine has been kept cold and is still functioning and viable, that's that's what you want, right? That's how you make the impact happen. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, in businesses like this where the product is the impact, um, you know, how are you thinking about serving uh, less advantaged communities, McKaylin, or um, making sure that in something where it is your core business but also your impact, uh, how are you how you know how are you thinking about the impact versus just you know core business revenue generating? Sure. So the answer to that question is actually easy because. If you think about a clinical trial, then you have somebody who is in a remote third world country. They may not have access to anything really. Mm -hmm. And how do they know that the medication that they're getting is safe because it was delivered to them on by a courier on a bike? So that actually is a, a great impact because they don't know if it's safe. They don't know if it's efficacious because they don't have the transportation to get it to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Makes and a lot of sense. And it's interesting because I uh, we're hearing a lot of um, effort around these, these areas. I mean, everything mm -hmm. from drones to deliver things yep. to um, one of our uh, colleagues at the, at the med school has actually created something called Energize the Chain, which uses cell phone towers um, and has refrigerated um, areas around that that you could plop the vaccine into. So it isn't quite the last mile, but it's at least getting it much closer and in ways that kind of guarantee the efficacy. Yeah, I'm curious about the, the cost of some of these products, right, when we're thinking about patient communities in need. So you've got this new product. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it. Libero ITS? Yep. Okay. And this is an industry disruptor. It can monitor the temperature for the entire shelf life of the drug, even into the patient's home. So this is, well, is this something that goes on the pill bottle? Or what, tell me technically what this looks like, Reinhardt. Yeah, it's like uh, an indicator. <laughs> and it's not bigger, I mentioned it before, than a postmark. And you just um, stick it on the box. Yep. And, or the and what is the cost like? I mean, is this something that can be scaled to mm -hmm. like the global, you know, uh, yes. fl flu vaccines and things like this? It very much depends on the quantities, of course, but it's between three and five dollars per piece. Okay, okay, excellent. Now, as you as you guys think about, um, you know, your core business model and you know, three to five dollars per piece, you know, f per flu vaccine and things like that. You know, you can you can imagine that being very inaccessible for you know base of the pyramid communities and need and things like that. Um, you know, what are you doing to work with nonprofits mm -hmm. or perhaps work with you know the global community to make that more accessible? Sure. So we work with um, vaccine suppliers that supply to third world countries yep. or they supply medications that have to be temperature controlled. So whether they're for profit or nonprofit doesn't really matter because they have to meet the same regulation as anyone else. And so the, these are the that's your your client in effect, the, the yes. people who are working with the vaccines, trying to get them to the to the last mile. And then the question just is, is whether they're the ones who are paying for it by um, I I yes increasing their prices or whether they're getting nonprofit support sometimes uh not necessarily the the model depends on who's generally who the manufacturer is so oh. the manufacturer can specify uh how their drug is monitored and it doesn't have to be a vaccine it can be something that's in a maybe a phase three clinical trial or even at a hospital that's stored long term on a shelf say uh, a, a third-party logistics company who has a big warehouse so it doesn't have to be a vaccine. Gotcha. It could be really anything. 
Okay, right, because it's just affixed onto a product, and so anything that needs to have constant temperature, you've got that, that yeah. kind of approach. You can imagine there. it on meat packaging or something like that, right? Anything. Sure. Um, I'm curious, you know, are you seeing trends? So this is a really neat technology, right, to be able to measure that temperature over the lifespan, make sure it stays constant, make sure the product stays high quality. As innovations like this happen, are you seeing a shift in, you know, where that drug goes, you know, are, um, I imagine, so if this becomes a mandatory part of a particular brand of flu vaccine, are you seeing, um, you know, emerging markets or basically pyramid communities shifting to another provider that doesn't have the increased cost of this now mandatory, um, you know, tool on all of their vaccines? Reinhardt, are you seeing any consumer shifts? Because this is a, an, an incredible asset, but it comes with a cost. I think a consumer shift is that um, people start to get their own made messes, uh, medicine, you know, the, like a customized medicine for oh. that specific person. And for this type of medicine, I think it's really worth to have that uh, indicator on it. Oh, it's interesting. more expensive. It's made for a specific person. So it's also worth to have an indicator whether it's still effective when it reaches that person. Got it. So, and the, so and this how does it, it work? Is there, is there an app that goes along with it that tells me if it's, if it's gotten too hot? Do I go on the website? How, does it, how do I know? Two things. You have a, a, like a light indicator. Okay. That it's, if it's green, it's fine. Okay. And okay. you also have an app where you can check the um, stability budget of that product. Okay. No, that, that's helpful. Excellent. Neat. What other, um, so you guys have a chance to, to take a look into the supply chain of a product in a very unique way and see the efficacy of this particular, you know, innovation. Um, Michaela, what else are, is this, you know, driving you guys to think about? Are there other sort of interventions or pain points that you're seeing as you've gotten a chance to see the uh, incredible opportunity this one has brought? Sure. So if you take a look at the entire supply chain and how much it costs to ship a pallet of drugs, then you, you realize if something's out of specification, then the manufacturer essentially has to make the call. Do they, th- do they throw away the entire pallet or do they save part of it? So oh, something, yeah. something like this could essentially save millions of dollars for a company. And even though you think about, well, it, it's $3 or $5 to put on a box, in the end, it saves more money for these companies because they don't have to destroy an entire pallet of drugs or it gets to the patient in temperature and that's guaranteed. Got it. So you're so historically, what would have happened? You would have taken a pallet and taken out a few and tested them. And if they were bad, do you toss the whole pallet? Uh, not necessarily. It could be um, there's a different type of device that could be on the pallet. And there's no way to prove whether the temperature affected the entire pallet or just a portion. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I'm imagining, you know, pallets sitting somewhere and one side is facing the sun Sun. and those go bad but you've got 80 percent on the interior of the pallet that are totally usable and previously those would have all gotten dumped because the one pallet sensor would have said this got too hot absolutely fascinating so how did um how did the impetus for creating this product happen do you have an innovation team within the company or i think the starting point was uh our ceo Uh in books and um, of course, we have a, a global team. We have discussions with customers, so we see also what they need and what is important for them. And the disruptive thing about that technology is um, the cost-effectiveness, the, um, the the lasting. Um, um, how can I say uh, the, the the three to five year uh, yeah. lasting oh, that's uh, up to time. the patient? Yeah, wow, so that's it's a long, a long time. time. And also that you have that um, calculation of the stability budget, so you always know whether the medicine is still effective or not. Yeah. Who's, whose pain point did you see or hear that triggered the creation of this? Was it customers? Was it the shipping facilities? Was it the production company? I think innovation is always a combination. It's, you know, you have smart people yeah. sitting <laughs> in the development team. You have... Uh, people out there in the field who collect data so it's always a combination of of different teams in in an organization absolutely Mm -hmm. um i'm curious about how you guys measure the impact of what you do because you can think about many ways to do that the you know the lifespan of the person receiving the drug the number of people who receive the drug effectively the cost reduction by not dumping full pallets because a percentage are bad how do you think about measuring impact 
difficult to measure, but I think you can look at it anecdotally because you hear in the news every once in a while where flu vaccines weren't efficacious or they had to destroy a lot. But um, you can also think of it as the story where it gets to the end user. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll receive a call. Well, uh, we needed to resupply a patient and they have to come back to do the clinical trial and it's in Asia. So how do we get drugs from the U.S. to Asia overnight because this person missed their appointment? Oh, it could be yeah. something as simple as that. So measuring that is, did the patient receive their drugs? Were they in temperature? And could they prove it? Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, um, when you when you track your impact work, are there key metrics that you, like, how would you put all those stories together to say, you know, last year we made this amount of impact, next year we want to target making even more? Or is the power really in just the stories? I think the power is in the stories themselves. And hearing those, and we do yeah. hear about patients who um, were able to receive their medication on time or how um, a company, maybe a manufacturer, saved several million dollars because they didn't have yeah. to uh, throw away pallets of drugs. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it seems to me that that's, you know, that's really the important part because you've got medical costs can be so high that, that and the, the need for the medicine mm -hmm. is also so high that if they have to destroy a lot of the, the vaccine, it's yep. it's a real issue. When you the think medication. about a lot of these medicines where it's a series, right? And it's, you know, not only do you lose the impact of the one, but maybe they had seven shots and this is the eighth in the series for it to be effective, you know, and so all of them are really necessary. So yeah. it's very, very interesting. Um, we've got a couple minutes left, so I want to shift over to talking about what's next because uh, this is a super, super exciting product and the impact is, you know, quite clear. Um, what are other things you're thinking about, Reinhardt, for, for impact of uh, the incredible power of this company? Good question. Uh, we have a uh, lot more other things in the pipeline. I'm just thinking, Michael, do you have an idea? Tell us about. Exactly. What the company is looking to do is track the temperature of the drug from manufacturer to patient. So if it was out of storage at a certain point, then the company can look at that overall, we call it a budget of the temperature of the drug. And then we as a company can store all of that data for them. Got it. So you'd be able to say, you know, because you use this shipping facility when it got transferred from boat to truck here, the temperature spiked. Is there an incentive for that? Not, I guess it, if it hits that threshold and it goes bad, that's the incentive is to keep it from going bad in, yeah. in that region. Interesting. Well, I'll be curious to see because I, I could imagine a lot of innovation being spurred by that, you know, yeah. in, in the containers or the shipping containers or... It's really the next step is teaching these companies how to use their own data. Mm -hmm. They're inundated with it. So how do we show them what they can do with their data? Interesting. Well, we are, we are certainly excited to hear what they do with it. Thank you for sharing these awesome stories with us. So we've had Michael and Reinhardt joining us here from LPRO. Fascinating story about how to make sure we are able to sort of retain the the efficacy. Yeah, efficacy of drugs. This is Dollars and Change here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, live from the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This has been just the first half of our show, so come back and join us after the break for four more fantastic conversations. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.